0: Hi and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is Nick Speller, an Influencer Specialist. Would you like to introduce yourself, Nick?
1: Hi, yeah, so I'm an uh, Influencer Marketing Practitioner, I guess you could call me. Um, I'm Head of Strategy and Partnerships at Influencer, which is an influencer marketing platform uh, based in London.
0: Right. And what specifically do you do within this
1: industry? Um, I mean, I've had a number of different roles up until this point. Um, I started, I was going to say back in the day, it was probably about five years ago, uh, running influencer marketing campaigns, um, worked my way up through various agencies, um, helping a whole different range of brands in a whole different range of industries and countries along the way, kind of, deliver on their influencer marketing, um, You know, finding the right influencers, working with them in the right way, um, looking at the results at the end to see if we'd actually done that. Uh, and I guess as my career has progressed, I've moved away from the actual day-to-day delivery of campaigns into much more of the thinking that goes in behind them. So how should a brand look not just at a single influencer mm-hmm. campaign, but look at their campaigns across the year? Now, are they working the right channels? Do they work with the right people? Are they measuring things in the right way? Um, so it's all those kind of I guess, more advanced questions that have come up as the industry itself has grown and developed. And I suppose as more people have put more money into the industry, these questions have become more pertinent. Which reminds me that as an industry, influencer
0: marketing is really still in its early, early stages. You said you've been involved for five years and that's probably about as long as it has been going.
1: Yeah, no, I'd, I'd say that. I mean, it's... You know, I guess influencer marketing, you know, people would go on about, you can go and sit through these talks where they say it began, you know, thousands of years ago. I mean, the idea of influencing people has always been around influencer marketing in the sense of using social networks to influence people has, has technically been around as long as social networks have. But I think, you know, a lot of brands were slow or slowish to grasp the potential. Um, And it started very much with gifting and freebies. And I mean, um, you know, this as well as anyone, you know, brands, brands back in the day were that's all they did essentially was get in touch with people mainly on Twitter and then on Instagram and say, hey, if we send you a free pair of shoes, do you want to wear them for us? Um, and obviously, as that's that's become more competitive, so more money's got involved, and and it's kind of grown from there. But yeah, I mean, you know, early 2010s, the idea of influencer marketing was very, very unknown. Um, even five years ago, it was still relatively unknown. I guess it's had a real boost from sort of a, a kind of boost from the negative i guess but you know things like the fire festival documentary and various oh. news articles <laughs> about kind of i guess the the influencers who exist in the kind of pseudo celebrity part of the industry so the love island stars that kind of thing has really kind of got the uh, media hooked and, and elevated influencer marketing to a position where I now don't really have to explain what I do to my friends because they see it on the BBC or they see it in the Daily Mail or they see it in a newspaper somewhere, whereas before two, three years ago, they hadn't got a clue what I was talking about. So, so yeah, it's not been around that quickly, but its rise has been quite meteoric, I would say.
0: It seems to me that almost every young person I speak to today, granted not that many, <laughs> But they want to become an influencer because they see that, uh, oh, influencer, loads of free shit, lots of money, lots of traveling, it's totally glamorous and desirable. Is that what being an influencer actually is?
1: Um, well, no, I guess. Um, I think, yeah, you're right. It's in a, I mean, young, i oh got to, it makes me sound really old. Young people are always attracted to a glamorous, <laughs> a glamorous future, aren't they? I mean, when I was a kid, everyone wanted to be a footballer or a movie star because they see footballers and movie stars earning lots of money and living a, you know, living a very enviable life or seeming to. I think the thing with influencer marketing is it's a lot more accessible. So it's even more people, you know, it doesn't take you very long as a kid to work out you're not going to be a professional footballer because you're not very good at football. Um, Influencer, being an influencer is a lot more accessible because the barrier to entry is pretty low. You know, if you just have technically, if you just have enough skill and internet bandwidth to upload stuff to Instagram, you're going to gain a following. But I guess like the footballer and movie star analogy, what you see on the surface is not the work. You know, it's it's the output. So, you know, the real work of becoming a proper influencer is huge. You know, people have to dedicate essentially their entire lives to it. And that doesn't just involve content creation and the skills involved in you know the creativity and the delivery of that content but it also involves a community management it involves PR management it involves you know, physically attending events putting yourself out there pitching for work delivering on briefs I actually think you know and I have spoken to influencers in the past who have kind of looked a bit tired looked a bit haggard and sort of on a on a darker day have sort of suggested they might like to do something else or they envy the office nine to five because they just, you know, it's become a bit too much for them. Um, So I don't think it's a particularly easy uh, career career path to choose, even if it seems on the surface like, you know, it's all free parties and fast cars and free trainers.
0: Yeah. I have to admit that uh, the way you, when you put it like that, it does sound like a, a very tiring job, basically selling yourself, because you're really the product, twenty four hours a day.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's the difficulty, isn't it? I mean, essentially, it's a freelancer, you know, you, but it's but it's a freelancer who's who's almost selling their personality. It's very, I, I guess, it's, you know, from my experience, anyway, it seems very hard for an influencer to become influential without putting a lot of their heart and soul on the line and actually opening up. And that's what makes people attractive to follow is the connection you can have with people. So, you know, some of the most creative people in the world, I'm sure, produce brilliant images or videos, but probably can't gain much of a following because there's no human element there. They're just putting out content. And while people might like the content, they're not going to form a bond or at least think they're forming a bond. So they're not going to get as involved in, following and communicating with these people. I think a lot of the influencers out there, you know, have really showcased their lives, showcased their, you know, their relationships and their ups and their downs and, you know, even mundane things like moving house and it's built a, a following essentially who've, you know, a, a hardcore following who want to know how they're living, but then want to know more. Um, so I guess, yeah, in that respect, it is quite relentless.
0: It sounds uh, quite strange to sort of convert your entire life into actually content. And it seems such a, a bad word to use about it. So I'm doing all this stuff and it's all content, so my followers will like it. Uh, I mean, do do people actually manage to keep it up?
1: Um, well, I mean, most most people have to date. I think people end up striking a balance, don't they? Yeah. Um, and I, and I suppose it depends on what content people are putting out there and how new and novel it is. I mean, Instagram stories, I guess Snapchat before that, but Instagram stories probably more so really took the bat and ran with it. The notion that this kind of I'll post once a day has became I'll post once every 20 minutes. Um, and by doing so, you do start to reveal more about yourself, the commute to work or the the travel to the next event or you know, the reflections you have on the day after a few beers, that kind of thing. Um, I guess that the demand for that kind of content's probably eased off as Instagram stories and the like isn't quite so novel anymore. Um, and I think, you know, to your question, my, uh, you know, a lot of people have lasted, but a lot of people have also fallen by the wayside or decided to opt out of it and go and do something else. Um you know, going back to the point of you know kids wanting to be it, I do think it requires a certain personality type to really exist and thrive as an influencer.
0: I can imagine. Um
1: yeah, you, know, you say that with
0: Instagram stories, people might be posting stuff sort of every twenty minutes or so. But the sheer volume of stuff posted on social media—I mean, how do people even follow it all? I'm just thinking if I was posting three times an hour and I had people who were dedicated to following what I was posting they'd be using a whole lot of their life just in what I was doing
1: yeah well I think it, I mean it's very passive isn't it social media I think that's something that, um, that doesn't really come across and it's definitely something the social networks don't want to promote the social networks always want to promote social media as a social network with a kind of equal posting to communicating balance so you know you and I will talk but Actually, in reality, most people are posting and most people are looking or listening or watching, but they're not replying. So it's not so much of a network as it is a kind of a broadcast. Um, And in that sense, I guess, you you know, if you follow a thousand people on Instagram, they're all broadcasting. You don't need to watch all of it, but you're going to pick up bits and pieces along the way and see their life evolve. Even if you only watch one in five of their Instagram stories, you get some Mm -hmm. Or at least you feel you get some feeling and insight as to who that person is. So yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the, the the volume of content now is huge, particularly as the number of platforms has increased and the the elements of what each of those platforms can do has increased. Um, but I think you know a lot of people do do seem to like or that kind of passive, you know, sit there and I'll look through Instagram stories and see whatever I know or think I know is up to
0: yeah uh, with so many people on say instagram so many people vying for attention everyone one trying to promote themselves hard and uh sort of be noticed because being an influencer is all about being noticed as i see what what actually makes a few bubble to the top or it, it is is there a room for small influencers?
1: um i think in terms of what you know what makes people i think you know, I've said this before, and I've heard other people say it. You know, a lot of influencers arrived accidentally. You know, particularly people who started at the the dawn of these social networks. They didn't sit down and go, "Right, I'm going to become an Instagram superstar. I'm going to become a YouTube superstar." They started producing some content, generally because they liked doing it, and for whatever reason, other people liked it too and found a value in it, so started to follow them. Um, I mean, I think, regardless of how, it's kind of a bit of a get out from me, but. You know, delivering value is what it's about. So whether you're a comedy influencer, whether you're a photographer, whether you consider yourself a designer, you're going to grow an audience as long as you can provide an audience with value. Um, and that's, what's going to see you get to the top, I guess within the range, you know, that's the, that's kind of the beauty of influencers. Uh, the influencer space is that there's a huge range there for people to exist in. So, you know, people can carve out a, a good career from 10, 15, 20,000 followers um, as much as they probably could 200 or 500,000 followers. I mean, the, the sizes of the checks might be different, but there's still probably enough scope there for them to make you know, a, a decent enough career of it. So I guess it just in that regard, it depends on your niche and whether there is one. So if you've got a particular area of focus, you focus on a particular subject that might only attract a few thousand people, but actually attracts them very strongly. So you still mm. have that connection that's of value to, I mean, ultimately, when we're talking about influencer marketing, we're talking about is your connection to people of value to brands? That, might, that may well be the case, even in a, in a very small niche. You mm. a big fish in a small pond. Well, exactly. You know, you can be... I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example here, but I'm kind of I'm struggling a little bit. But, you know, you might be... Model uh, trains or metal detectors. You know, it's really funny. I actually thought model trains. It's weird that we both thought that. <laughs> I, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you could set out to be the number one you know, model train enthusiast Instagrammer, and you may only get 12,000 yeah. followers, but you might have every single model train enthusiast out there following you. So to a model train brand, you are the big cheese. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, that's why... You look at beauty and fashion; people accumulate millions of followers, um, but that's because beauty and fashion are very, very large areas, you know, very large industries anyway, and lend themselves very well to online. So, you know that the opportunity is there. Whereas for the model train enthusiast, perhaps it's not so much. No,
0: um, speaking of following followers, numbers of followers. Now I know this is a particular interest of yours. That maybe not all the followers are as legitimate as one might like to think, or the impression that is given.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I've you know I've talked about this for years, probably to the point where I've got bored of it now. Um, but you know, fraudulent followers, I guess, was always likely to follow an inevitable consequence of follower numbers being heralded as such as, as kind of the, the mark of the value of a of an account. So. You, know, you have a million followers, you're gonna be worth more than if you have half a million followers, it kind of figures, I guess. Um, mm. so that does leave the opportunity for someone to say, well, if my skills and my value isn't such that I can actually gain a million followers, what if I just put my hand in my pocket and went and bought them or got them some other um, you know, slightly, slightly dodgy way? I think that was always an an inevitability in a market that's well, in an industry that's brand new and in a market that's Complete, essentially completely unregulated.
0: Mm. Because uh, I think it was about two two years ago now, um, I think that was when I first came across the subject of buying followers and how easy it was, but then Instagram, at least, they sort of shut down the two companies that were offering these services, and it sort of all went a bit quiet for a while, but nowadays it seems to be even more so than ever. Uh, I keep getting messages on Instagram, I get emails daily from companies offering to sort of build my following organically or just straight up buy likes, buy followers. So it appears to be a big business doing the fraud side of it.
1: Yeah, no, no, uh, yeah. I mean, it's always, as long as there's a value on the follower numbers, there's always gonna be someone who can provide that. Um, I'm not sure how the social networks or whether they tackle it as much as they could do, but even if they tackled it to an absolute extreme, I think there would always be room. I guess the more they tackled it, the more it would cost to be fraudulent and the more it would put people off. I think the thing that really attracted people is the low cost. You know, I remember seeing, you know, getting those, like you just said, getting those emails that would say, oh, you know, 10,000 followers for $100 or $10, or, you know, the amount, the sort of amount of money that, is not really of much consequence when you're doing this to make more money on top of it, if that makes sense. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's, it was an inevitability. Um, I think, you know, it goes in waves, doesn't it? At least once a year, there's a big outpouring about it. There'll be an article that names and shames a whole bunch of people. Um, you know, there'll be brands that get cross and cancel contracts with people who bought followers you know, it's, I don't think it'll ever stop until the social networks want it to stop, or at least invest enough effort in making it stop. Because ultimately, they control the platforms, so they could control the yeah, you know, they could control this um, probably quite easily. But they just, you know, I, I guess my whole point is, uh, do they have an incentive to? You know, they're always quoting how many users they have. They're always, and that's how they, you know, sell themselves as a platform to investors and to advertisers. So, do they really want? The the fraudulent accounts being cut. I'm not sure. Well, I think there's definitely a conflict of interest there between
0: um, promoting what they do and being, as you say, we're honest about keeping the fraud out. Mm. Which is a strange industry, though, because I'm at say 13,000 followers on Instagram now. I could by the end of the evening have half a million if I just dug in my pocket.
1: Yeah.
0: Would that would that make any difference to how people view me?
1: What, as a brand or just as a sort of morally, I guess? Um, Well, that's two interesting sides. Yeah. (laughs) I suppose, you know, people who come across you would suddenly think, you know, hey, there's this really, really popular guy. I should probably follow him. And that's part of the idea, isn't it? That a lot of the work people do in buying followers. Is to attract real people because you stumble across someone online who's well followed. You're going to assume that they're well followed for a reason, and you're probably going to follow them too. Um, I guess as a, as a brand, you know, brands aren't going to look particularly well on that because a lot of them base their the price they will pay you on the number of followers you have. So if you've inflated that artificially, they're paying for nothing essentially. Um, so it's yeah, it's definitely not in the brand's interest to work with people like that um I yeah I guess it's you know I, I suppose it's I guess the other thing to say though is if you're an influencer like why would I don't it depends what you're trying to get from this if you're just trying to earn money then yeah I can see it as an attractive way of doing it but I'm not really sure why you'd want to live a life where you produced content for an audience that you know wasn't real um <laughs> because at the end of the day you know people don't just work for money do they 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 work for a purpose and they work, you know, for their soul in a way. And if it's, it's got to be pretty soul destroying, you know, and why would you bother putting in any effort? You know, you're not going to push yourself creatively because at the end of the day, your fake audience are going to like it just as little as they would have done if you'd, you know, pulled all the stops out. So it's, it's a bit of a strange one. I, I can see why it's attractive in the short term, but in the long term, it surely can't do you much good mentally.
0: Yeah, I can see people wanting the, the boost to become noticed. I also see people buying buying likes for individual posts to sort of give them a boost as well, to be, appear
1: more popular. Well, that was always the thing. The, I mean, the, the early days of, of buying followers meant you just got a load of followers, but then you didn't get any increase in engagement. So people could easily spot it because they'd say, well, you've got 100,000 followers, but you're only getting 30 likes. You know, that's not, those numbers don't add up. So then it's almost, I guess it's almost like a drug in a way, isn't it? It's like, a, or an addiction. It's like, okay, well, I bought the followers, but now I better buy the likes because I've got to keep up the pretense that I'm this well-followed, well-liked individual. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just, again, I can see the short-term attraction to it and getting some brand deals and earning some money, but I, the, the medium to long-term is surely not an attractive proposition for anybody really. Um, and the fear, of course, that you do start to be followed and you do start to become a recognisable person and then one day this all comes out in the open you know, and someone says, hang on, you've built your career on dodgy foundations. I mean, we only have to look at the, you know, the recent um, Black Lives Matter uh, protests and see a lot of influencers now being, being attacked for their past comments and past posts. Um, you know the, the internet does have a history of doing that you know people's history does come up and get them so i just you know if you if you want to set out on a career in this industry building it on dodgy foundations is not really the way to go no, i can imagine that would be pretty merciless as well well yeah i can't you're not going to get much sympathy that's the that's that's the root of it really um and i mean it's you know from the brand side from the side i work on it shows in the data you know i have I have worked with people in the past who I you know every business I've worked in has had and has developed a fairly stringent detection process for fake followers or or you know artificially inflated numbers but the there's all you know the, the difficulty is it's kind of a blend of art and science it's never 100% foolproof so there's always one or two people that perhaps you end up working with who you think they have a strong suspicion but you can never prove it And if you can't prove it you can't really sort of take them out of the equation so you know in the past I have seen data and I have worked with people who I'm pretty convinced that they've been up to to no good and when it comes to looking at the numbers at the end of the campaign those numbers show you know they're, they're not you know, huge numbers of likes, huge numbers of followers, but nothing else. You know, their content's not been saved. You know, if you're talking Instagram, their content's not been saved. It's not been shared. You know, mm. the comments are all spam or they're all from the same group of friends time after time after time. So you you look at that and you think, okay, so, so you know, as a brand, you're getting nothing. And the real telltale sign is generally comes down to the demographics. You know, a lot of these people end up buying followers from far away Countries that they have no connection to, and you just look at them. You know, I remember seeing one person years ago, sort of, uh, fifty thousand followers, London-based fashion blogger, ninety-six percent of their audience is from Brazil, and you're just like, <laughs> but, you know, as a brand, they, and that could be legitimate. They could have, for some reason, attracted a real audience in Brazil. If you're a UK-based brand who's only selling to UK or European customers, you're not interested in that audience. It's a bit like me telling you I've got the greatest billboard in the world. And then you go, oh, cool, we want to advertise on that. And I say, oh, yeah, but it's in Sao Paulo. You know, it's, that's of no interest mm-hmm. to Vodafone UK or O2 UK or anyone, you know, who's looking to reach a UK audience. So it's it comes out in the numbers. Um, and it's something that, you know, past two, three years, definitely the last sort of 18 months, brands have really, really focused on. Um, you know, how many, what percentage of your audience is in which country has essentially become the defining factor of whether they'll work with you or not.
0: Because they do have good tools to, to at least...
1: Yeah, there's tool, You know, there's tools out there, or if you're connected to the Instagram API, you can get hold of it. Um, I mean, part of my biggest problem, well, my problem, but part of the industry's problem in the last few months is actually convincing brands that they're going too far in the other direction. I've worked with brands recently who've said, oh, well, we want to work with someone who's got minimum 80% UK audience. And I'm saying to them, look, I've got 2,000 followers on Instagram. I don't have an 80% UK audience. Like it, the internet is global. You attract a global audience. You're not going to attract 96% of people in Brazil, but the idea that 100% of your audience are going to come from your location is quite, you know, that's that's going to be tough. Um, that's going to be tough to find. And it's some of the biggest and best influencers out there don't have a particularly strong audience in the UK, but that's because their content has gone global. And there's a lot of people in America who use Instagram. and So you're going to get a heavy weighting towards the U S. And as other countries start to increase their usage of Instagram, you're going to see that happen too. So, so I guess there's a balance to be struck there.
0: Indeed. I have quite a following in Taiwan. I've no idea why, but, uh, (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, I had a friend who he did a, I think he did two years in Southeast Asia. And so his audience is huge in Southeast Asia because he was traveling. He was posting pictures in these areas and he's tagging them. He's doing everything, you know, the social media playbook tells you to do to increase awareness of your content and engagement. And of course, he's getting followed by people in Singapore and Thailand and Vietnam. So when he comes back to the UK, brands take a look at his demographics and they're like, well, hang on, this looks weird. Why have you got so many followers from Southeast Asia? And he has to explain to them every time that, you know, he spent quite a bit of time there, hence why he's collected an audience from
0: them. Yeah. So if you don't want to use fraudulent tactics, and and that reminds me, there's a second one. Instead of buying likes and um, followers, there's what what I like to call the sort of social engineering or manipulation method. And and this is often spoken about as a way to... um, to increase following where you're you're liking you're commenting on following people with the ultimate goal of them following you back and you can do that manually or you can buy various tools to do this for you
1: yeah i mean that where was does that the, it? that was almost the original you know people a lot of people sort of used that or tried to use that in the early days of instagram and saw it as a legitimate method I remember there was an article years ago about the, this guy who invented the first Instagram bot and he did it to sell his app on App Store, which was an Instagram geolocator before Instagram had geolocation. And he basically worked mm-hmm. out that the more followers he had on Instagram, the more app downloads he got. And he spent all night liking and commenting on people's posts and realized that it increased his following. And then he realized that actually he could just automate it. Um the article has since been taken down, which is a real shame, but I imagine it's been taken down because he basically showed everyone the secret. Lots of copycat apps sprung up from that article. Um, you know, lots of people did this. I ran it on a test. I did one once on a test account to get a better understanding of it. I set up a an account that just focused on beer or something like that. I can't even remember. And I, they were offering free trials because there were so many of these services at one point, they were all falling over yeah. each other to get customers. So I did a three day free trial and I gained the account gained 150 followers in three days and I hadn't posted any content. so <laughs> I hadn't done anything and this was there and this was a free trial of their minimum service. If you went for their pro service, you know they claimed they'd get you like a thousand followers over the same pa- space of time. so you could see how you could quickly ramp up, gain followers. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people out there who say this is a legitimate method of growth because they don't have time to interact and it only attracts people who are interested in their content, But I don't—I still really don't buy. I mean, it's sort of against terms of service on Instagram in particular because it's considered spamming. But also, you know, it's a bit of a flag wave, isn't it? People do have a tendency to follow people who follow them. So if you follow and comment on someone's post and they believe you to be real, they're likely to follow you back, whether they really like your content or not. Um and then if you unfollow them again and they don't notice you end up with you know i'm following 100 people but i've got a following of 100,000 and it can happen quite quickly um, mm-hmm. again though it you know it it distorts the numbers the numbers behind these people's posts aren't good because their followers are coming from anywhere and everywhere they're not targeted and these people become a bit phantom they follow them but they don't interact so they again their they sort of their genuine engagements drop and that's when these people start to venture into the world of buying likes and comments and things to try and balance it all out and as i said you look at the stats beneath it and it it doesn't really pay in the long run um, and if you're a brand looking to work with these people you're getting less for your money than you would if you worked for someone who had a legitimate following
0: i kind of noticed that people who have followed me for a very long time they get a bit um slow with the likes uh it takes a lot for them to like photos now it's gone a bit uh Bit bored of the liking, I think.
1: Yeah, well, which is, I, which is a I huge problem for my stats. Is you know, the, the workings of the Instagram algorithm are, are kind of crazy. They, you know, there's people I know out there, you know, and I'm going to say I know them personally, not just follow them on Instagram. And I was thinking of someone the other day who I hadn't heard from in in a while, and I was I haven't seen his content in ages. So I was thinking, oh no, maybe maybe something's up. Maybe he's had a big sort of life change. And, and I searched him on Instagram, and he's still there. He's still posting. And I actually went and scrolled through my Instagram stories and he's right at the back. And I just thought, why is Instagram put him there? Because I interact with all of his content and we, you know, regular dialogue. So I find it weird that Instagram's algorithm would suggest that he's not someone whose content I want to see. Um, but so I just, you know, how it works is kind of unfathomable really in that regard. Um, and I guess, really? I, I don't know, it would be really useful if Instagram... You know, and I think they probably are thinking of doing this as they build more of a service for content creators. They should enable people to do more and see more about their audience. You know, who's, a real useful stat would be to see who's actually online. You know, if you've got 100,000 followers you've built up over 10 years, there's going to be a high proportion of those people who, who, who don't go on Instagram anymore. Um, or who go on it very rarely so it's almost like they should be able to give you the chance to get rid of those people as followers because although you'd end up with fewer followers you'd end up with a with a kind of stronger follower set and a, and a stronger amount of engagement from the people who are left um so it's yeah it's 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 a bit of a weird it's a, the algorithm itself is a bit of a weird one and I guess just by being, by virtue of being there a long time, you you do pick up phantom accounts, you do pick up ghosts, you do pick up followers who aren't really there anymore.
0: Yeah. Um, You mentioned uh, a
1: bit earlier accounts
0: where you have the same people liking and commenting on each other all the time. We're we're talking sort of these Instagram pods, there, are we?
1: Yeah, comment pods. this
0: huge, huge thing about a year ago. I think it was about a year ago. I see it a lot on accounts I follow now. It's a sort of usual suspect commenting on each other's posts all the time. Lots of high fives and sort of bro stuff.
1: Yeah. yeah. Entirely uh,
0: meaningless comments, but very earnest.
1: Yeah. They're, I mean, they're a strange one, really. In fact, the beer account I had, I had for about a month. And it wasn't long until I got invited into a beer pod of relevant beer accounts. So I joined it. Um, and it was a WhatsApp group. And the minute I joined, they sent me this rules and regulations. And the rules and regulations were that essentially I had to like and comment on a certain number of posts every week where I'd be booted out of the WhatsApp group. And it, there wasn't even a kind of period of, you know, they didn't give you a warning either. It was so well marshaled that they basically tallied it up. And if you weren't following the rules, you were just deleted from the account. Um, and I mean, I, I sort of looked, you know, I've. I opened as many of the posts. It was relentless. And my phone was going off every five minutes. And I'd look at these (laughs) posts and I'd be like, and I actually tried it to begin with. And then I was like, I couldn't, I can't meet these regulations even if I wanted to. I don't know if these people have jobs or if they just don't have a job that requires much activity because I just thought this is a full-time job on its own. It might be full-time
0: influencers.
1: It, yeah, they could be well like a few of them were because they were these full time sort of beer these these were mainly accounts in america but they were all i mean they were funny because they're all crap looking content you know really poor photos of different beers all with thousands of likes tens of thousands not hundreds of thousands of followers and loads of comments but the comments are all from this pod <laughs> and they're all the same they're all copy and paste of course because that's what people do. Yeah. It makes sense doesn't it you just write a load in your notes and every time you go on there and just hammer through and keep posting the same thing again It's soul-destroying stuff. You know, you're not looking at the content. You're not enjoying the content. You're not even having any interest in the beer. You're just fulfilling an obligation with a group so that they'll fulfill their obligation to you. I just, I don't know how people, you know, it requires a lot of uh, stamina to sustain that for more than about 10 minutes.
0: Um, Probably thirsty work as well.
1: Well, exactly, yeah. But that's the you know, the bigger they get, the more beer they get sent. So I guess that's how they uh that's how they do it. I mean, yeah, like I said, I didn't last more than a day. Um and but it was it was a really useful insight. It was quite a fun exercise that week just to have a look at how these things work. Um I mean they replicate what you see in, in real life, you know, for a lot of people, particularly the sort of the micro influencers, they do get the same people commenting on their posts because they do have a small group of sort of hardcore friends and fans who like all their content and like to actually have meaningful conversations with them. But like you said, there's a, there's a lot of people out there. You scroll through their posts and it's the same people with the same, you know, cool post bro over and over and over again. It's just not really, yeah, it's a bit of a strange one. And that kind of thing is, again, it's something that brands look at and particularly on branded pieces of, you know, piece of content they've paid for. They, they, they analyze that kind of stuff and they tend to not work again with the people who've done that because, you know, you go and present your end of campaign report to your managing director and you've got 10,000 comments of which 90% are just all comment pod comments. You're not actually showing any value, are you? You're just showing that you've essentially paid for a load of people to post on your, on your content without actually absorbing it. So you're not going to ever have much impact.
0: Interesting. So, when it comes to the fraudulent side of, um, of the influencer business, um, we, we discussed a bit uh, that Instagram obviously has a bit cross-purposes with regards to what they really want to do. And clearly, the brands don't want fraudulent influencers either, but yet there's still so much of it going on. So, what, what can really be done about it? Or is there any will to do anything about it?
1: Um, I think there is an incentive on the part of some people within brands and marketing agencies not to do anything about it. It's easier to turn a blind eye to it because if you have a contract to deliver a certain number of influencers with a certain audience size and a certain volume of content, um, you 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 look for the quickest way and the cheapest way to do that. And often that will involve working with these people obviously working with these people then kind of works to fulfill their, you know, what they wanted, which is money from it, and perpetuates the perpetuates the problem. Um so yeah, I can see, you know, at that at that level, the means becomes the end in a way. But then if you're a big brand spending a lot of money, you start to scrutinize this a bit more and you start to scrutinize the agencies you work with. Um, and then you start to look at the real value this is delivering, and you probably conclude that something's going wrong. So either influencer marketing isn't for you, or the way you're doing it is is incorrect. Um, I think again for the platforms, the um, sorry, I've got some weird drilling going on in the background. I don't know if you can hear that.
0: I've got a lawnmower at this end. So <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I think for the you know for the platforms, there is an incentive as I said earlier, a short-term incentive not to worry too much about this because it keeps their numbers high. And it's those numbers yeah. that they sell to investors and it's those numbers that they sell to the, ad, um, to the advertisers. I think as we move forward, there is, and I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet, it keeps threatening to but never kind of spill it over. I think particularly Facebook is in a position where one day someone's going to take a deep dive into these numbers and say, hang on, there's a lot of people out there paying for a lot of advertising that's going to robots or going to non existent, you know, going to accounts which are humanly managed but only for the for the benefit of the people paying for these numbers. Um, you know, if if I was a social network or if I was an investor in one, I'd be asking, well, what's your real human percentage? You know, we all know that Twitter's full of bots and some of those bots are legitimate. You know, they're like the weather bot. But if the weather bot follows me, that doesn't mean I've got a follower. Really. So, you know, how many of my followers are robots? You know, that kind of information will be quite useful. How many of my followers are active? How many of my followers are in my, my, my market? If that kind of information was publicly available on people's profiles, then I think you'd see people actually pushing for a better quality of follower. They wouldn't be pushing for fake followers and they wouldn't be pushing for followers that come from other countries that, that are irrelevant to them. They'd actually be working really hard to make those numbers as as best you know seem as as best they can. I think when you're dealing with individuals who have accounts who aren't influencers, that information is probably not necessary. But if you're a creator and your purpose is you know if you're an influencer and your purpose is to make money from this, then I don't see why that information shouldn't be visible for everybody to see. Right.
0: The question that sort of comes to mind now is, I mean, do influencers really really work? Does it deliver? Does it? Is it a, a
1: valid business? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that pays my salary. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, but, course, yeah. yeah um, you know, I've seen it work. I, 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 you know, this is kind of the beauty of it. It doesn't work in the way that people want it to work, which means it provides jobs for people like me. Because then I can go around and tell them how it does work. If it worked perfectly, I wouldn't have a job you know, if it didn't work at all, I wouldn't have a job. And if it worked perfectly, I wouldn't have a job because if it worked perfectly, anyone could do it and it'd be really simple. Um, I think, um, yeah, you know, I've seen it work in a number of different ways. Uh, I'd say the first one is I've worked for a time in affiliate marketing and there that's kind of, you know, that that can't really be disputed. You, you have influencers who use links, those links generate web clicks and those web clicks generate sales, and you can tie the two together and you can say, okay, we ran, we paid this YouTuber to include our products in their video. We paid them a thousand pounds and we made 3000 pounds worth of sales. So therefore it works, um, you know, and it's, yeah. it, you know, that's a return on investment. Um, it becomes trickier when it's a product that isn't an impulse purchase. Now that works really well with fast fashion. That works really well with cheaper you know, cheaper beauty products, but it's not going to work when you're trying to sell a car or when you're trying to encourage people to fly to Las Vegas or you know anything like that. However, that content that's online still does do that. You know, If I see enough people stalling the virtues of a holiday to Las Vegas, I might book a holiday to Las Vegas. Um, so there is a value in that. The difficulty is how do you track that? But then the same can be applied to lots of advertising. If you run a billboard campaign across London for, for holidays to Las Vegas, do you necessarily connect a rise in the number of people booking holidays and that billboard? You you make some intelligent assumptions based on data that you have available and based on historic data. I think the one thing this industry has obviously lacked being so young is that historic data. But it is getting there. And you know, when brands are looking to spend big money, they, they do ask for and they do want to see these calculations being done and these calculations being done in an intelligent way. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, if they spend sort of six-figure sum on their latest tourism campaign and no one can prove that it delivered any value, then they're not going to do it again, are they? Because they'll go bust pretty quick. So, um, you know, they're in, in short, it does work. It's just the proving proving how it works is, is the tricky part. Yeah.
0: Um. A few years ago, I think it was, um, they tried to make rules and regulations about how influencers mark their posts and so forth, really making them stand out and declare themselves as influencers. Did that have a major impact on
1: things? Um,
0: Or do people even mark them? I mean, people,
1: people mark mark them a lot better now than they used to. I mean, you know, this is, it's a difficult one for me to admit, because I actually sit on one of the boards of the advertising standards authority when i first got into this industry on the other side of the fence when i was writing for a blog and we're talking like early 2010s here i had no idea that these regulations existed and they did exist you know advertising anything that was an advert had to be declared but i guess back then we were getting you know like a free jumper or a all expenses paid trip to a you know a, a city in the UK to take some photos and write a blog didn't seem like advertising. It was advertising, and we should have declared it. Um, as the industry has evolved and as more money's come into it and significant money, that's become more more of a an issue for the regulators to face. Um, I think reinforcing and repeating over and over again the rules has helped. People are doing it more and more. I think the real impact has been that. Create uh, influencers have realised that actually, when they get involved in an ad, more than anything else, they they have to work hard. You know, their their audience are going to be slightly more sceptical of the content. They are going to be slightly less willing to get involved and engage or watch the video. So the content has to be really good. It has to be the best they can provide to to offset that. Um, I think obviously it was easier back in the day when people didn't really declare that you could just throw up a cheap piece of content with the brand in and you'd probably get the same reaction as you would to any of your other pieces of content because people didn't know it was an advert. But now it's, now it's not really the case. Um, so I think it has had an impact, for the, in my view, for the good. I'm sure a lot of people who are influencers probably say for the, for the worse, but there we go. Yeah, I
0: kind of think the moment I see something is a sponsored post or a commercial collaboration or something, I'm just think, yeah, that uh, doesn't influence me at all, which sort of means that the laws have, <laughs> have reduced the value of the influencer totally.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think the problem is this industry, and this is a difficult one probably for people to hear or me to say, if this industry doesn't work in the way brands would like it to. They would like me to come to you give you a pair of jeans pay you some money you wear the jeans once you do a post with the pair of jeans on and tomorrow morning we've sold 100 pairs of jeans it, it you know it can work like that but in reality in the main it doesn't you know i follow people online as do most people for their value and sometimes that value is the, <clears throat> the advice and opinions they'll give me on clothing or grooming products or, you know, what car to buy. Mm -hmm. The fact that they've done a paid piece of work as a one-off is probably not going to influence my purchase of that brand. But if they do a longer-term project with that brand and they keep referring to that brand and they show me the real heart and soul of that brand and keep impressing upon me the, the USPs of that brand and the value that brand can deliver, then eventually I'll probably crack and go and buy it. Um, you know, I've, it's that, and that to me is where brands really need to look beyond for influencers. You know, this isn't a billboard. The best campaigns I've seen are the most interesting. You know, where brands have let creators be influencers be creative and done things which, you know, they wouldn't do on a billboard or they wouldn't do on a TV ad. You know, I've seen. I used to do a lot of work in the drinks industry, and there, I mean, I find it really fascinating when people do pieces of content behind the scenes of a brand. you know, I did a piece of content for um, Bombay Sapphire and people really liked it and they really liked seeing the distillery and they really liked learning about the process. They knew I'd been paid for it because I said at the top of the blog, I've been paid to do this, mm-hmm. but it, I don't think it, I don't think it dampened their enthusiasm then for the brand. But then I wasn't saying in the post, this is the greatest gin ever. You have to go and buy it tomorrow. I was, you know, giving them a point of value, a point of interest, a point of difference, and I think that is where influencer marketing could really shine. And I think that's where a lot of brands make a mistake. They just want to take twenty bottles of their gin, send it out to twenty people, have them smile nicely and say this is the greatest gin I've ever drunk, and then they think people are going to rush out and buy it. it just doesn't, you know, doesn't work like that. So, um, you know that, that that's where the that's where the lack of value comes. I think. Maybe
0: they're hoping for a really, really naive audience. So you just see your favourite influencer so with that bottle of gin and you think, oh yes.
1: Well I guess I mean, to be honest, you know, a lot of advertising in the wider space comes down to numbers doesn't it? You know, some of the biggest brands in the world haven't got to where they are because they're a good product necessarily. It's because they're a consistent product and they're consistently shouting about it. You know, people, people have heard the name Coca-Cola a billion times. So then they, when they go into a bar or restaurant or pub and someone says, what do you want to drink? They'll just go, Coca-Cola because it's easy. Not necessarily Mm -hmm. because it's the best drink on the menu. So part of influencer marketing, unfortunately, for someone who likes the creative side of it does fall into that trap. If I've got a 10 million pound marketing budget and I want to sell the latest brand of beer, I can spend millions of it on billboards, millions of it on the TV, and I'll save some to saturate Instagram. And the content might be a bit crap and the people I work with might be a bit ropey, but if enough of them keep shouting about my beer, you know, the numbers trickle through and when everyone goes into the pubs, once they reopen, everyone goes to order a pint of this new beer. So I yeah. think that's where I think that's where the notion of this, you know, send 20 bottles of gin out and just have them smile politely works. Um, it's a shame because I think it, it in itself devalues the industry because it just means it's just a you know, influencers as a mouthpiece for the brand rather than as content creators, which I actually think is the real value of influencer marketing is in that content creation. Um, but I guess it works for some people somewhere, so they're going to be encouraged to do it.
0: I have to say you swayed my opinion a bit with your Bombay Sapphire story, because I can see how that would actually be interesting.
1: Well, it's in yeah, and it's interesting if you're interested in it. I don't think, you know, I'm um, you know, I've been fascinated going up. I've done loads of um, uh, kind of free press trips up to Scotland to go to whiskey distilleries, and I, you know, one of the first whiskey distilleries I ever went to, it was the first whiskey distillery I ever went to, and it, you know, back then I didn't know a huge amount about whiskey. I even knew that the brand who took us up there didn't create didn't create what what would ever be classed as the greatest whiskey on earth. But it was amazing how when I came back and I wrote a few articles about it, how many people online would say would drop me a message and say, oh, I'm buying my dad and my uncle a bottle of whiskey. What was that distillery you went to again? And I didn't even have to say to them, oh, you should get it because it's the best. I just told them about the distillery. And, and then they'd say, oh, thanks very much. I'll go and buy a bottle of it. So you know, in that regard, it did work. Um, because I think people are interested in that kind of thing. They're interested in the, the workings of brands and the workings of a product. Um, and that's going to interest them and entice them. But yeah, me just holding the whiskey and smiling and saying it's the best whiskey ever. Just, I don't think anyone's going to buy it on that basis. Well, <laughs> maybe if you were a sort of well-known or world well, famous yeah, whiskey. If was, yeah, but even you know, um, David Beckham's Whiskey Hate Club, Now they paid David Beckham, I imagine a phenomenal amount of money and they've had to reinvent that drink about five times because they seem to struggle to sell it. So you know, even with David Beckham's smiling face, one of the most recognizable people on the planet, they can't shift bottles of it. So, you know, there I'd probably argue they'd probably be better off spending a small selection of the money and sending a bunch of drink-interested influencers up to their distillery to see how it's made. They'd probably have sold more bottles.
0: True, mm-hmm. uh, true. We're running out of time now. Um, in closing, I'll ask all my guests what sustainability means to them. How do you think that plays
1: into the influence field? Oh, that could have been a a whole podcast episode, but I'll keep it brief. Um, I, I mean, I think sustainability has, you know, last, again, I keep saying this phrase, the last six months, definitely the last six months, if not the last year, sustainability has really come to the forefront of influencer marketing. Because I think, you know, influencer marketing does revolve a lot around fashion, more than probably any other industry I can think of. I guess gaming, maybe automotive a bit, but but definitely fashion, and fashion has a huge part to play in in sustainable, you know, sustainable lives and sustainable living. Um, and influencer marketing has been used a lot by the fast fashion brands, who are probably some of the least sustainable in promoting their product. And I think a lot of so sort of influencer marketing has been on the receiving end of a lot of criticism there. And I think a lot of influencers themselves have kind of reflected on the work they've done in the past and actually changed tack now. Um, so I think it does have a huge part to play in uh, in in influencer marketing. And I actually think activism more widely is now a massive part of, of the industry and people want to follow people who share the same ideals and values as them and not only share them but promote those ideals and values. So I think, again, looking at the Black Lives Matter movement of, of just the past couple of weeks, we've seen – a lot of influencers now declare their position outwardly on these matters and make statements to the effect that they will be pursuing this, this kind of activism uh, throughout their content and throughout their lives, and that's going to become a part of what they do. Uh, I think sustainability is the same. I think a lot of influencers have started putting that in their bios. They've stopped working with certain brands. They make sure that when they feature products, they list the sustainability credentials of that product. Um, so I can only see that getting stronger really in the next year a couple of years very good um, thanks a lot for joining me um, Nick
0: it was great no worries it was good fun that's all for this episode of Gomology. if you enjoyed this please do subscribe and I would really appreciate a good rating thanks for listening in and see you next time